Episode 129 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks, offering a month of unrestricted use, totally free, and you don't need a credit card for the trial. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. than letting the what's in my life guide who I was going to become. Why don't I break free from all norms and expectations? And then that will help me figure out who I am and the who should be guiding the what rather than the other way around. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback back from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hello and welcome to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where, of course, the topic of leadership is central to what we discuss each and every week. But we also hit on things like personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. In a moment, you and I will be joined by Adam Braun. He's the author of The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. I'll ask Adam about how he's lived out the mindset that self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends, what it means to speak the language of the person you want to become, the inspiration behind the idea of thinking like a for-purpose organization as opposed to a nonprofit, and much, much more. If you're not currently using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, you may, in fact, be in the minority. It seems everywhere I look, there are FreshBooks users all around me, including my friend John Dennis of Smart Time Online. John, how long have you been using FreshBooks? I've been using FreshBooks now, I believe, for about a year and a half. And I originally discovered FreshBooks because of your personal recommendation, actually. (laughs) That's right. I completely forgot about that. So what's the experience been like so far? Life-changing for my business, I'd have to say, in that it is simple to use. It's intuitive in nature. The usability of it is intuitive. And easy is what I need for saving time. I need easy. I don't need something that has this massive steep learning curve. I think FreshBooks has just done an amazing job of being able to dissect and and kind of pull out what business owners really need. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. So when you think of FreshBooks, is there a favorite feature, one that that stands out above all the rest? You know, I love their recurring invoice feature that doesn't cost me any extra money. We've processed multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars and I've never once had a payment hiccup with any of their payment gateways, whether it be through PayPal, PayPal Business, through Stripe, through WePay, through anything that that I've integrated. And I've used pretty much all of them. Then I just, I'm, I'm with them. I'm a lifer. Well, thanks, John. I encourage you to take advantage of that free month of unrestricted use FreshBooks is offering right now. No credit card needed to do that. To claim your free month, just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. 
Adam Braun is the founder of Pencils of Promise, an award-winning nonprofit organization, or as Adam would say, a for-purpose organization, that has built more than 200 schools around the world. In 2012, he was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and Wired Magazine's 50 People Who Will Change the World. He's a graduate of Brown University and a frequent speaker at conferences, colleges, and Fortune 1000 companies. Adam is also the author of The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. I am thrilled to have him on the show today. Adam, welcome to Read to Lead. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be, uh, be a guest today. Well, I thought we would start by having you share a bit about your upbringing. I was fascinated by how your parents instilled in you the things they did, this idea of not always going along with the crowd and and also the influence that your grandmother has had on who you've become. Sure, sure. So, well, my upbringing, I would say, was definitely not, uh, you know, out of the ordinary. (laughs) Um, You know, fortunately, when I say that, I mean in a positive sense. Um, You know, I was raised by two very loving and supportive parents, but you know, one of the things that I kind of am able to reflect back on is um, just their, I would say, belief in us as kids mm. uh, that we could go out and kind of become whatever we wanted to become in the world. And so as I think back on, you know, the two of them and their parenting styles, I think, you know, if there was a single word that uh, most captured, uh, you know, the kind of values and, um, you know, who my parents are for my mother, it would be integrity. You know, my mom just believes so deeply in, um, you know, a moral upbringing and doing the right thing for the right reasons, even if people weren't watching. And my dad, I think the single word would be ambition. Mm. Uh, Just, you know, he was an immigrant to this country. Both of his parents are Holocaust survivors. And he was kind of raised with this mentality that, you know, one, you should feel so fortunate to just have your your life because it was taken away from so many of my, you know, extended family members who I never had the chance to meet because they perished in the concentration camps. But additionally, um, that, you know, because of that blessing, you should really try and go out and uh, aspire to do something great in the world. And so, you know, they they uh, often use this phrase with us uh, before we'd go to sleep every night. And I write about it in the book and I've gotten a lot of feedback from now, other parents using it, uh, the last thing I'd hear before I went to sleep was just my parents saying, remember, bronze are different. <laughs> um, and it wasn't meant to say that we were superior or better than anybody else, but just that we were held to a different standard. Mm. Um, and uh, a lot of that, I think, also stems from, you know, as you alluded to, my grandmother had a very large influence on me. And that was because when she was 14, she was sent to Auschwitz with her 12-year-old sister, her Mm. mother, and 25 other family members. And all of them were uh, sent to the gas chambers the first night except for her because she was working age. And so she survived uh, for 14 months in, in, you know, essentially the Nazi death camps. And Mm. in a lot of ways, when you come from that lineage, and my my grandfather has a very similar story, losing his brothers and his father and him also being in the concentration camps – when you come from that lineage, you just have this desire to not only make them proud, um, but to make sure that their survival wasn't in vain. And uh, I think it really motivates you to go out and do something great. Your grandmother, did she not struggle for, for a time wondering, you know, why was I spared? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she definitely, I think, you know, for a long time felt uh, probably some guilt, some remorse, some mm. of those, you know, troubled feelings that, of course, anyone would feel. But Uh, you know, I talked to her a lot about it recently, um, you know, and she's 86 now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she has the opportunity to reflect back and she consistently says, you know, as, as bad as I had it, I really feel like for all of the things I went through, um, I got it all back in family. 
And mm-hmm. so she really fundamentally believes that, you know, her, her purpose in surviving was so that she could have the family that she now has. And of course, when you hear that, especially as a young kid, you know, it puts this tremendous, it's not so much a weight, but it's, it's kind of like this honor that you get to live out her expectations. There's certainly nothing quite like a grandparent. I lost my last grandparent just a couple of weeks ago uh, and still still struggling with that uh, uh, today a little bit. Well, uh, Adam says, true self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends. And I could not agree with that more, Adam. What experiences have convinced you that that is true? Well, you know, probably the most poignant one in my life was uh, going on semester at sea. Hmm. Uh, at that point in, in time, I was a, a sophomore going into my you know, junior year, and I started to kind of look at my life, and I had never really left the Northeast, maybe a couple small family trips. But you know, even those trips, I, I hadn't really immersed myself in the local cultures in the way that you do when you're in your 20s mm-hmm. or, or teens as a backpacker with kind of no restrictions on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, you know, I, I grew up in the Northeast, and I, I think uh, especially if you go to a suburban public high school like I did, uh, you know, we had almost 3,000 kids in my high school, and mm-hmm. so there was actually a lot of diversity. But I think in high school, one of the things that, at least when I was growing up, was kind of the, the norm was conformity. You know, you kind of wanted to dress the way that a lot of other <laughs> kids were dressing. You didn't really want to stand out because that could lead to, you know, bullying or not kind of fitting in with the right crowd. However, you might want to perceive that. Mm-hmm. And I was a, an athlete, a student athlete, and I played a lot of basketball. And eventually I was recruited to play basketball in several different colleges and ended up going to Brown University uh, to play basketball and study. But, you know, I found myself looking at the life ahead um, as a 21-year-old, and I was really committed to working in finance. I had held internships at hedge funds and, you know, was on this kind of fast track to a Wall Street career. But uh, I just looked around, you know, at the world and I saw a film called Baraka that kind of showed all of these indigenous cultures across 24 different countries. And I'd never even known that a lot of these places had existed. Mm. And so suddenly uh, I felt like, wow, there's so much to see in the world. I've never left this kind of, you know, tiny bubble of the Northeast and, you know, playing basketball. And if anyone kind of asked me about myself, that was my whole identity. And I thought rather than, you know, kind of letting the what's in my life guide you know, who I was going to become. Why don't I try and get out of my comfort zone, mm. break free from all norms and expectations, kind of challenge all of my inherent assumptions. And then that will help me figure out who I am and the who should be guiding the what rather than the other way around. And so semester at sea was my first opportunity to do that. Um, I left school for a semester, didn't go with a single friend of mine, didn't really tell anyone I was doing it because I wanted to be completely removed from <laughs> you know, my, my normal identity and the people who knew me. And uh, that was when I not only discovered a love for backpacking, but a real love for the developing world and kind of found my sense of, of purpose in the education space. That trip, too, was a little more than you bargained for, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. So for uh, anyone who's not familiar with my story, um, I, uh, I went on semester at sea in uh, the spring of 2005, which is one of the few famous voyages on mm-hmm. semester at sea. And we're, we're known as the wave trip. Uh, if you meet any alum from semester at sea and you say I was part of the wave trip, their eyes kind of get big and they say, oh, my gosh, because uh, we were hit by a 60 foot rogue wave about uh, 800 miles from land crossing the North Pacific from uh, Vancouver headed towards Korea. And when that happened, it uh, shattered the glass on the bridge. It flooded the uh, area with the navigational equipment and we lost all power. Mm. And we were in about 40 to 45 foot swells of freezing water outside, no ability to get into any lifeboats and 
it was kind of a Titanic-esque experience, but, um, mm. you know, it really did force me in that, in that kind of, you know, position of peril to say, all right, you know, will I perish today? And once the, you know, kind of internal answer came back as no, then I started to think, well, if I'm not meant to perish today, what am I meant to do? Um, and that's what really kind of set me on the path to seeking purpose. So as you began to travel, take us from uh, this point where you were asking children very specific a very specific question to this time where you had this epiphany for the name of this organization. Sure. You know, I, I uh, had a habit of asking uh, one child in each country that we went through one question. And the question I decided on was, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? And, um, you know, I thought that the answers I would get would be the things I wanted as a kid. So I thought maybe, you know, one kid and I don't know, Kenya would want like a big house and a kid in you know, Brazil would want to own a soccer team or have a soccer stadium or something like that. And I kind of had these, you know, typical answers in my mind, but the answers that I got were really surprising and disarming and just so full of kind of, you know, childlike wonder and wisdom. And the most profound of those answers was when I was in India, um, I just never seen poverty like that. And it was really, really tough, you know, to kind of emotionally process that, you know, children could live in that depth of poverty, um, you know, unsupervised, you know, kind of four-year-olds holding six-month-olds in train stations begging. And uh, I didn't really know how to help. And so I, I went up to a street beggar uh, who was about nine years old, probably. And I asked this young boy if he could have anything in the world, what would he want most? And his answer, much to my surprise, was a pencil. And I kind of asked him why, and I, he, he explained he had never been to school before. And he saw these other kids with pens and pencils. And, you know, if, if I gave him money, someone would have taken away from him. You know, food might have helped for that moment. But uh, I recently learned that a pencil, uh, the average pencil holds 40,000 words. Mm. And I just thought it was such a powerful and beautiful metaphor for, you know, having the tools to self-empower mm. um, an individual. And so I gave him my pencil. He just lit up. And after that, I, I continued to backpack uh, as frequently as I could through as many countries as I could get through. And uh, I always brought pens and pencils with me because I was naturally pretty shy. And you know, if I walked into a village or a market um, with pens and pencils out, kids would come up you know, and talk with me. I could chat with their parents. I could make friends with villagers. And uh, eventually, I found myself uh, several years later working at Bain & Company, one of the top consulting firms in the world, seeing how great businesses were built. But I didn't you know, feel like much of that for-profit business acumen was really being applied to the nonprofit sector. Mm. And, um, you know, why wasn't <clears throat> the way that these great companies were being managed and the talent that was inside of them uh, focused on addressing the world's most humanitarian issues? And I, I felt like maybe I could be one of those people who could uh, make that, you know, kind of introduction. And so uh, eventually in uh, late 2008, I, I was kind of inspired one night to start the organization. Bain has an externship. You can leave for six to nine months uh, work for anyone else and come back. And I got this idea that mom, my grandmother that I told you about was turning 80. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, something, you know, maybe instead of being, uh, somebody who's living in service of myself, which is mm -hmm. how I was kind of operating as a 23 year old in Manhattan at the time, uh, 24 year old, you know, why don't I just kind of live in service of somebody else? How about I just find a way to honor Ma in the most profound way that I can. And that would ideally be in building a school. And so, um, I founded the organization, called it Pencils of Promise, and uh, decided to commit to uh, building a school. Well, speaking of that, I love the story of how you revealed to your grandmother what motivated you to, to, to build the school. Yeah. Share a bit about that and why you believe, Adam, that, that happiness, as one of the mantras in the book says, is found in celebrating others. Sure. So, you know, when you have a, uh, 
an older Jewish grandmother um, who, <laughs> you know, is, is incredibly loving and caring. And every time that, you know, I would talk to her and say, Mom, going to this country, Mom, going to that country. And they were, were always like really, really rural kind of remote countries. Um, she always had the same seven words to me, which were, uh, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> it was always those seven. And so, you know, eventually, uh, you know, I decided to start this organization. I, I didn't tell her why. I thought it would be a great kind of surprise for her 80th birthday. And so uh, the night before we had this big family kind of celebration for her, I asked if I could spend time with her alone. And she said, of course. And so I went and sat with her um, in an apartment in New York. And uh, I kind of had these photos prepared and I showed the photos of the village beforehand and the non-existent school that they had. And I started to show some of the photos of the children that I had met. And, you know, immediately I think she could kind of see, oh, my gosh, this is mm. This is why he was going out there. She knew I was building a school. She didn't really know why. And I think once she started to see the kind of human elements, and then um, eventually I showed her a photo of the school, and she had this big kind of gasp, and she said, you know, this looks just like the school that I went to before I was taken out mm. and sent to the concentration camps. I said, Ma, there's one other part I want to show you. And then I showed her a photo of the, um, the plaque. Uh, and on the plaque, it said, you know, not only in partnership with the local education ministry, but it said lovingly dedicated to her um, as well as my other grandmother. And when she saw, you know, she kind of read her name on this school, you know, it was it was immediate uh, waterworks for both of us. And it's hard for me mm. to even kind of describe it now. <laughs> I can kind of feel the tinge of emotion rising. But it was just, you know, one of those moments, you know, that I will never, ever, ever forget for as long as I live. And, you know, I think it kind of brought us together in a really special way. And, you know, out of all the things that I could have bought for myself or, you know, a you know a nicer apartment that I could have maybe rented. There was nothing that would have touched the level of um, you know joy and uh, happiness and and really intrinsic gratification that um, I felt in that moment and have felt since um, in you know building that first school for her as well as my other grandmother and then all of the subsequent schools since. Well, I have to believe, Adam, that if there was still any doubt in her mind as to why she was put on this earth, it was erased in in that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing because it was so emotional. You know, not, neither one of us could really speak for minutes. We were just mm. kind of sitting there. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably two days later, I asked um, one of my friends who was working on the organization with me if he could, you know, come and record a little interview with her because I, I really did want to kind of capture some of that sentiment. And, you know, she was, again, very emotional and a lot of tears were shed. But, mm. you know, one of the most powerful things that she shared in that um, interview was she said, you know, I've always uh, kind of wondered why, why did I survive? And I really believe in seeing this, that this is part of the reason why. Well, Adam, what do you mean when you say, speak the language of the person you want to become? One of the other mantras in the book. All right. So, so that was really kind of born out of, um, I would say, my approach to um, you know, kind of living the most kind of fulfilled and uh, biggest life that you can in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, there's obviously tremendous, tremendous significance and probably nothing that you can do that's more noble than being a good member of, of your family. You know, I don't have kids, but I can imagine, you know, raising kids, being a good, you know, spouse to your significant other, a good, you know, son or daughter to your, your parents, sibling, to your brothers and sisters. But, um, you know, on the other kind of scale that I look at, which is how do you bring um, true positivity into the lives of as many people as you can, you know, impact in the deepest way possible? I think it's really daunting and scary for a lot of people. Uh, it's certainly been, you know, for me at different stages in my life to think about, all right, how do I create this large impact? Where do I even start? And I see a lot of people oftentimes paralyzed by the inability to act because they're just picturing 
the end outcome, right? They're kind mm-hmm. of picturing, you know, the creation of the Empire State Building. They don't realize that it starts with somebody, you know, kind of putting a single, you know, pick into the ground. Um, and that eventually this huge structure will be created, but it starts with very one, you know, one small sequential step after another. And so, you know, what, what I kind of realized I was doing in building the organization was one, I rarely ever speak in present tense. Mm. Uh, when I'm describing, you know, what I do for work or, you know, how I spend my time, it's almost always in future tense. And it's almost always an aspirational language that doesn't describe who I am in this moment. It describes the person that I seek to become. Um, mm. It describes the aspirational life that I can envision myself fulfilling. And what I found is that when you speak in that aspirational language, I mean, if I broke it down to, you know, uh, you know, if I meet a, a, a young girl who, let's say, is a 15-year-old, and if I met her and I said, so tell me about yourself. And if she said, well, you know, I'm a sophomore in high school, I'm on the JV basketball team and blah, 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 I would probably stop her and say no. You need to describe yourself as, well, right now I'm a sophomore on the JV basketball team, and within two years I'll be the captain of the basketball team. Mm. And when you start to kind of put, one, that energy and idea out there to others, not only do they believe it, but you start to convince yourself that these things are possible. The second thing is your conversation becomes about that future self. And so if someone was to say, well, I'm going to be the captain in two years, I would say, okay, um, well, I actually know this guy who's a captain of – you know, a boys varsity team at a nearby high school. Would you want to talk to him about some of the things that he's doing to, you know, lead his team or some of the summer workout exercises he's doing or his path of, you know, becoming captain of a team? And what you find is that just by voicing that future self, Mm. it leads to opportunities of people saying, well, you know, in my case with Pencils of Promise, I had never built a single school. But when I went out to bars, I didn't really get excited by saying I'm a consultant at Bain. What excited me was saying, I'm going to one day build schools around the you know, developing world. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly people said, well, what about the teachers? And what about the um, you know, education ministries? How are you going to work with them? And I had to essentially figure my way out into those answers. Mm-hmm. And at the end of those conversations, they'd say, well, you know, I, I know this woman who runs a clinic in Nepal. Would you want to speak with her? And so suddenly I started getting introduced to the people and the kind of pieces that were going to enable me to become that future self. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. How hard was it, Adam, to to finally make the decision to leave Bain, especially when it seems like everybody around you, every major influence in your life was telling you how crazy that was? Yeah, I mean, it was I think it was kind of, you know, unexpected for most Mm. people because, you know, I had a really great steady job. I had really, you know, lucrative job offers to go work in private equity in particular. Um, And instead, I was going to kind of leave it all to go work on this, you know, upstart nonprofit out of my apartment. Um, but I think when you kind of, uh, evaluate things, not on an axis of passion, but on an axis of purpose, uh, things become very, very clear. And what I mean by that is, you know, passion is, is very fleeting passion, you know, kind of happens in a moment and you get excited about something for maybe four or five months. It's like a diet or a workout program. But when you look at purpose and you really ask yourself, what am I here on earth to do with the limited time that I have? Uh, when you discover that answer, um, it's almost more challenging to ignore it than to pursue it. <laughs> and so in my case, I fundamentally felt like, um, you know, I was uniquely positioned to go out and build that not only first school, but once the first school was completed, you know, we had a set of new schools that were underway. And I just felt like, why am I, you know, holding off on this? Why don't I pursue this now? And, um, 
you know, it was certainly challenging to persuade others that it was the right idea, but I knew that it was going to be the right thing for me. Mm. I, I spent 14 years myself working for a, a nonprofit. And, and by the way, nonprofit is, is a term that, that never made sense to me either. I always felt right. like I was right. apologizing for something. Yeah. Uh, what, what inspired you uh, in you the term for purpose and, and how, how do you define that term? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, like you, I, I really don't like the term. I felt like, you know, I'm not a nonprofit person. I've never woken up in the morning and been inspired to not profit. I've been inspired <laughs> to, you know, uh, one, provide others with the opportunities to profit in their lives, mm. um, especially those in, in poverty. And uh, additionally, um, I wanted to bring greater meaning and, you know, a sense of purpose into my own life. And I just looked at, you know, every time I talked to somebody, uh, I said I run a nonprofit. Their eyes would kind of glaze over and they'd look for somebody else to speak to. And I thought, why am I kind of disarming the work that we undertake? Why am I removing it of its value? And additionally, why am I removing myself of being able to provide value to this other person? Because, you know, I think most great relationships, especially in the business context, are kind of, you know, dependent on a two-way value exchange. And I thought, well, I can give somebody a tremendous amount of value. I can give them a sense of meaning, a sense of kind of purpose. I can build a relationship between them and their kids that they can't replicate. You know, I can get them involved in something that gives them tremendous intrinsic reward, uh, especially if they're in a position of wealth. Sometimes, you know, making an additional hundred thousand dollars doesn't mean nearly as much as building a school and dedicating it to, you know, a grandparent or a parent. Mm. And so I thought, why don't I just kind of reframe our language and the mantra in, in, in that chapter of the book is change your words to change your worth. And, um, you know, as soon as internally as an organization, you start considering yourself a for purpose, you know, you start to think about, well, how do we hold ourselves accountable to results? not to just purely not profit. <laughs> um, how do we kind of maximize our impact? And when you're driven by maximization of impact within the guidelines of a 501c3 structure, then I think you can do extraordinary things. And, um, you know, in kind of having that experience and putting this idea out there before purpose, what I've seen is now there's all these for-profit businesses that have adopted some of these ideas. And so I'll see all the time on websites, you know, someone saying we're a for-profit for purpose, or just nonprofit saying we're a for-purpose organization. And you know, eventually, uh, as I was getting all these inbound requests for people to, uh, you know, kind of get 30 minutes of a coffee chat or a phone call to kind of learn about how they could build their own high impact organization or company. That's kind of what led me to want to teach a lot of the things that I've learned in the last decade, because mm. there's really no good resource out there. And that's eventually what led to the, the course that I recently put together called the Nonprofit Playbook. Yeah, and I want to touch more on that in, in just a moment, too. Um, before I do that, I, I, I wanted to share uh, or have you share just about what you've learned giving public talks over the years. Mm -hmm. I believe that the ability to share your ideas effectively in public plays a major role in a person's level of success. And I appreciated what you had to say about focusing on one person in every room. So yeah. share, if you would. Uh, how you go about achieving that and any other tips you have for, for delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk. Sure, sure. So I, I've realized that, you know, after the nonprofit playbook, the next course that I'll probably put into the world is about effective public speaking. Oh, okay. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm somebody who, uh, first of all, was about as nervous as you could get about the <laughs> idea of public speaking. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't share this for a long time, but my a uh, family physician literally had to prescribe a beta blocker, mm. like a, a prescription medication because I was getting so nervous oh, wow. and I needed some type of help about, and this wasn't even like, you know, talking in front of a hundred people on a stage. I'm talking about, you know, speaking in front of a small group of 15 colleagues presenting work that I might've done at Bain. Mm. Um, and so what I realized over time was a handful of things and I'll, I'll maybe share three very quick tips for anybody. You know, now I 
travel the world throughout the year speaking. You know, I just got back from Mexico um, for a large company address. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll speak multiple times throughout the year and, you know, oftentimes in front of um, uh, thousands and thousands of people. Um, so the three things that I would share for any individual to kind of identify how to give an effective public speech out of the you know, dozens that I would love to share. Um, one, I would say, is always start with story. Um, understand that humans kind of communicate through narrative. It's obviously, you know, the oldest book is um, always kind of, you know, a story mm-hmm. that has been traveled by word of, uh, traveled through word of mouth. And so a lot of people, their discomfort comes from the expectation that they have to kind of dissect some industry or some idea perfectly. Mm-hmm. But what I would always encourage an individual to do is to start with their personal story. So it's very difficult if I ask somebody to tell me about, you know, the growth of the, um, you know, food consumption on uh, airlines over the last five years and their projection for the next five years. You could do that. You'd research it, but you'd be kind of nervous that people would kind of feel like uh, this guy's a fraud. Mm. This girl's a fraud. And that's what drives a lot of the nervousness. But if I was to say to you, just tell me about your Friday night. Just stand up for five minutes. Tell me what you did with your friends on Friday night. That's a very kind of comfortable place. And Mm. so if you start with personal narrative, not only does it get you comfortable, Mm. but it really starts to humanize you to your audience. And what you want is them to demonstrate empathy um, and a feeling of I've been in this person's shoes, too. So that's number one is start with story. The second thing I would say is um, when you're speaking to a room, uh, you want to focus on building a relationship with just one person by the end of that talk. Mm. And so a lot of people feel like, all right, if there's 150 people in this room, I need to win over all 150. Uh, What I can tell you is that conversion rates are often very, very low. Mm. Um, But if you just build one or two or three authentic relationships based on, you know, each of those interactions, it will take you so much further. And so when you're speaking, you want to make direct eye contact with the individuals in the room, you know, just looking up and kind of staring at the back of the room. It seems like you're building a relationship, but you're not going to. It's mm. really through direct eye contact with one individual at a time that you end up building something authentic. And then the third thing that I would share with any person is that oftentimes, you know, when people get up and they give a public speech, uh, whether they realize it or not, they make themselves the hero of the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're at the center of the story. It's your kind of narrative. And here's what you accomplish. Um, that's helpful to inspire people. But uh, inspiration is very different from action. If you want people to act on your behalf, you know, to buy your product, to donate to your cause, to, you know, commit to joining you as a volunteer or a board member or a supporter or whatever it might be, you know, a staff member, mm. um, what you need to do is actually tell a narrative that might start with your story. But over time, you need to move the um, hero of the journey over to become the audience. And that's really what drives action is when you kind of leave people. Uh, at the end of the speech with an opportunity, a very small, accessible, concrete opportunity to take a very discreet action. And that if they take that action, then they become the hero of the journey. And when you leave people with that opportunity, then they will act. Excellent. Are you a fan by chance of Nancy Duarte's work at all? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Resonate was a great book. And, uh, you know, she touches on uh, a couple of these principles as well. Well, we had the pleasure of having her on just a few weeks ago with with her colleague, Patty Sanchez. Uh, really enjoy uh, getting to know her and appreciate her mm-hmm. work a great deal. Um, Adam, I'm wondering if you can name for us uh, some books you've read over the years that have had the biggest impact on you. Maybe the, the one, two or three titles that, that you keep referring back to again and again. Sure. So, you know, my three are um, first and foremost would be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm. Uh, just a you know transformative book. It's it's kind of a classic at this point, but you know really talks about um, the value of finding your personal purpose. Also references you know 
who survived through Auschwitz and why, and it always came back to that sense of purpose. And so I obviously have a very personal connection there. Uh, second one would be The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Mm. Uh, just the idea of developing a, a personal legend. That's a book that I uh, not only gifted out to a lot of people, but I go back and read um, frequently. And then I'll touch on two for, for the last one. <laughs> um, you know, just my favorite book of all time is Shantaram by David Gregory Roberts. You oh. know, if you, if you have the time to, you know, you, you want to dive into a big book, um, I, it's, you know, every, turning every page is painful because you don't get to read it again. Oh. Um, that's how I felt about Shantaram. And it really, you know, as a narrative affected, uh, I tried to write my book as a page turner uh, the way that, you know, Shantaram hit me. And then last year, I read a book called Not Fade Away uh, that really was just r- hugely impactful, you know, an individual looking back um, on his life at the end um, and someone who found tremendous career success. But, you know, it, it was just so moving. You, you can't read it and not be moved to tears and also take a look at your life and say, you know, am I um, am I living uh, for my, my resume or am I living for my obituary? Mm. Well, speaking of of page turners, the promise of a pencil is, is certainly that uh, for sure. At least Thank I you. certainly felt that way. Um, and I know thousands of others do, too. Uh, Adam, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure that we know? Um, you know, I, I would say one thing that, that is important to me is that um, every uh, you know purchase of the book supports um, additional children getting access to education. Mm. So I gave all of my personal proceeds, including my advance, uh, back into Pencils of Promise. So you know, it's, it's not only a great book, I think, that will help any individual find their uh, key steps to living a life of success and significance. But, you know, it's also a great book to either purchase for yourself or to gift to others because in the process you're, you know, supporting children uh, who desperately need access to quality education through Pencils of Promise. You know, I often get books sent to me for free because of what I do. But when I heard about that, I didn't even ask. I just went out and bought a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That means a lot. Well, I promised I'd give you a chance to talk more about the nonprofit uh, playbook. Uh, fill us in on what's going on there. Sure. So, um, you know, essentially what, what I found was that after putting on my book and giving, you know, several TED Talks that now have hundreds of thousands of views, I was getting all these people reaching out. And, you know, if anyone is out there listening and they wanted to reach out to me personally, I always give out my email. It's just adam at uh, the letter ipromise.org. So just adam at ipromise.org. Um, feel free to shoot me a note, um, you know, in, in any capacity, if you wanted to help, you know, build an upcoming Pencils of Promise school, if you wanted to, um, you know, uh, sign up for the nonprofit playbook. But uh, because I was uh, giving out my email so frequently, I started to see this recurring theme. And it was all these people asking for personal advice because they had this aspirational idea to build either a business or, you know, m- most heavily a nonprofit or for purpose mm. that was going to impact the world in a positive way. And they didn't even know where to start. Or mm. for some, they had already started one, but it wasn't growing or they were, you know, looking to work at one. And so I put together this course, the nonprofit playbook. It's a purely online course. It's self-paced so you can learn on your own time. Mm. And it includes eight core uh, modules or lessons. You know, this is everything from uh, how do you get your mission and vision statement down to how do you, you know, file the registrations and paperwork. But most of it is really about the two things that individuals ask me for advice uh, most heavily, which is how to raise your next $100,000. How do you do, you know, six and seven figure fundraising, uh, a lot on fundraising. And then the second thing was, how do you build a world class team in particular when you have very little money to spend on that team? And again, this comes back to culture and you know, uh, kind of all these tips and tools and tactics that I've learned. And so for your listenership, what I wanted to do was offer something special. So if anyone uh, that's listening to this just wants to go to the nonprofitplaybook.com 
slash RTL. The nonprofit playbook dot com slash RTL. Uh, what you'll have there is the opportunity to sign up for a webinar that um, I'm going to teach. It's essentially a live training. And I'm going to share with people four things. The first is how to nail a dynamite pitch. The mm. second is how to attract a world class team uh, unpaid. The third is going to be about how do you scale and build an epic brand. And then the fourth is how to raise your next $100,000. And that's just a, a free live training that I'm going to put on for your listenership specifically. So uh, just go ahead to uh, thenonprofitplaybook.com slash RTL for your listenership. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. I had no idea. Yeah, my but, pleasure. Uh, that's, go- that's great. That's great. Well, Adam, uh, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, it was a thrill to get to talk to you. I've been watching your work for uh, for a couple of years now, and to be able to chat with you in this capacity and, 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 and hear some of these stories straight from you was just a real treat. I hugely enjoyed the book and, and can't recommend it highly enough and have, have already begun gifting it uh, to people I know. So thanks. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's really been a pleasure to have the opportunity. And, uh, and thank you again for you know giving me the opportunity to come on. Don't forget that special URL, an exclusive link just for you as a listener to read to lead. It's the nonprofitplaybook.com slash RTL. I've included links to that site and all the other resources that Adam and I spoke about, including how to connect with Adam on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll find it all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 129 for episode 129. If you and your business need some accounting help, remember our sponsor, FreshBooks, offering a month of unrestricted use totally free and no credit card needed for the trial. Just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. If you're into fitness and nutrition, especially eating healthier, I've got the perfect podcast for you. My friend Alexa Sherm just recently launched Simple Roots Radio. You can find out more about Alexa at her website. It's simplerootswellness.com. That's going to do it for this week. I hope to see you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 